it can only be your neighborhood face for radio, Drew, back with episode 9 of the podcast. Today we are talking about exciting new ways of countering drug addiction in society. I'm joined by Professor Courtney Miller from the Florida campus at Scripps Research. So let's jump right in with Professor Miller's background as she describes how she got interested in neuroscience and more specifically, our memories. So I've always been fascinated by the mind and how it works. And I discovered in high school sort of the field of neuroscience, which was really growing then. And so I decided that's what I wanted to do, was study how our brains work. And memory in particular really intrigued me, because at the end of the day, we really are a collection of our memories. If you lose your memory, you lose who you are. And in the course of starting grad school, I became interested in the flip side, so not what happens when memory fails, but especially how we deal with psychiatric disorders that are perpetuated by memories that are unwanted. And so to this day, that's what my lab focuses on. And the two primary examples of that would be post-traumatic stress disorder and then uh, drug addiction. Hmm. In the case of drug addiction, memories associated with the drug use serve as triggers later on when someone's trying to stay clean. And so those memories can be present for an entire lifetime, so they pose a relapse risk. So you can imagine how you know, really problematic that can be. Right. So I've been interested for a very long time in ways that we could selectively manipulate either traumatic memories related to PTSD or um, drug-associated memories. What is the current burden of addiction? You know, do we know what the rates are of this substance abuse and kind of the relapse in society? They're very high because of this. I mean, that would include people that abuse alcohol, nicotine, opioids, stimulants. It's a really large portion of the population that qualify those as having a use disorder. What's really a problem is that relapse rates are extremely high. Some reports are as high as 90% in the first year of initiating abstinence. And I think on average, there are about five relapse episodes for an individual before they drop to a lifetime relapse risk of about 15%. Wow. So it's, it's really a, a lifetime problem. A lot of the NIH likens it to a chronic disorder like diabetes. Right. It's, not, it's something right. that doesn't just go away. And then on top of it, only a small percent of people that need it are, are getting the treatment. So you mentioned the treatments. I mean, what is the current standard of care and the usual uh, behavioral strategies that are used to to cope with addiction and and prevent such high rates of relapse? So very broadly, whether you have an alcohol use disorder or opioid use disorder, for instance, the ideal process is to have some help with initiating abstinence, so getting clean, um, whether that's through a detox facility or some sort of outpatient program. Then that's combined with things like cognitive behavioral therapies to help people manage um, the stressors in their lives, which can be triggers for drug use. Um, And then for things like opioid use disorder, they also have medication-assisted treatment options. And so for something like opiates, there are um, replacement therapies. So what that does is simply replace the um, drug of abuse with something that, you know, works on the receptors but in a way that doesn't produce all the problems that typically Mm. comes along with it. Uh, For the most part of my lab, we're focused on stimulants like methamphetamine. And stimulants are a class that actually are a real problem because there are no replacement therapies available. Mm. Uh, People have tried, but when you're dealing with the core effects of stimulants acting on things like dopamine, which is a primary neurotransmitter that the brain uses, very difficult to come up with something. So that means that um, people with methamphetamine use disorders are completely reliant on 
cognitive behavioral therapies, abstinence support groups, 12-step, things like that. And for most individuals, that just doesn't seem to be enough. In your work, I know you've pointed out some of these limitations. So how is your approach different? So replacement therapies are very effective, but you are trading one reliance for another in that methadone, for instance, has to be taken consistently for the rest of a person's life, in theory. What we're stepping back is looking and saying, okay, so if someone is able to achieve abstinence, what are the triggers for relapse? Memories can can serve as triggers for drug-seeking because they um, can cause craving for things that are associated with the drug use itself. So that's really what we're interested in focusing on is targeting those drug-associated memories. So the idea is that a person would still have all of the existing support mechanisms, but on top of that, they would receive a medication that targets their meth-associated memories in hopes of removing or excising that um, one component that can drive craving. Yeah, it sounds so cool. And, and as I understand it, a lot of your lab uses these very nice approaches to measure drug addiction and relapse in animal models. So how is that uh, generally done? Yeah, there are a few ways. There are some simpler ones that we use to initially screen new targets or new compounds. And that one is condition place preference. So it's a three-chamber box, and the two outer chambers differ in the way they look, smell, and feel. And so animals will receive methamphetamine paired with one side or whatever drug you're working with and saline paired with the other side. And you do that over several days so that they learn to associate the rewarding effects with one of those two environments. Then later on, you can put them back in, they'll roam around, and they should choose to spend more time in the compartment where they had been receiving meth earlier um, because they remember that association. But really the gold standard at the field is to use self-administration models where the animals are in charge of their own drug delivery. So for that, we do a similar approach, except that animals can lever press for their drugs. So we put them in a really unique context, so it looks, smells, and feels unique from their home cage, and they're allowed to self-administer meth for a period of time, and then we'll move them to a different context. So it differs, so it's very distinct, and we take away access to the meth, but they can still press the lever. And what that does is teach them that it's not the act of lever pressing, but it's the environment that signaled their availability of the drug. Professor Miller's lab is using genetic and pharmacological methods to study actin and myosin, which are proteins that form a spatial network to help organize the cell. These proteins have emerged as key players in controlling the connections made by neuronal cells in the brain. See, when memories are formed, there's a rearrangement of the actin cytoskeleton within dendritic spines. And spines are the receiving end of connections between neurons. And when spines uh, reorganize, they can increase in size as well as increase in number, and that um, increases the strength of synaptic connections. And that's thought to be uh, sort of the, the physical laying down of a memory trace. So if you block actin reorganization at the time of learning, you prevent a memory from forming. So we were really interested in this question of what role actin reorganization plays in established drug-associated memories. The idea of how memories form is a really interesting one, but if you're talking about, you know, developing therapeutics for something like addiction, you really need to focus on once the memories are already in existence, right? Because someone's not going to come in and say, I'm thinking about developing an addiction, (laughs) can you stop (laughs) me? So we really want to work with, you know, once the memory is established. So we did that, so we blocked active polymerization when animals were asked to retrieve or drug-seek, so retrieve the memory and drug-seek. 
and we got this really unexpected result. The memory appeared to go away immediately. So from there's no sign of the memory from the first minute that we put the animals in the box and asked them to drug seek. And so wow. we did a ton of experiments, and uh, at the end of the day, all of it pointed to the fact that it looked like by depolymerizing actin, we were targeting the meth-associated memory in dendritic spines when it's sitting there in storage. And the effect seems to be selective because actin is stable in the rest of the spine. So for some reason, it's remaining active in the spines that are storing the meth memory. Now, why that is, the biology behind it, is a black box for us right now. But it did suggest that there could be some you know, therapeutic value to this because you could give animals an active depolymerizer once and their memory seems to go away for as long as you test them. But the problem is that anyone familiar with biology knows that actin is required for a huge number of processes throughout the body. So giving an actin depolymerizer would probably be lethal. When we were delivering it to animals, it was directly into a specific brain lesion. So we didn't have any of the systemic effects. So to get around that, we moved upstream one step to a form of myosin known as non-muscle myosin 2. And I collaborated with my husband previously on a project where he found that non-muscle myosin 2 directly regulates actin polymerization in dendritic spines. And so based on that, we decided to try myosin to see if we could get the same effects through something that might be slightly more selective. And we did. And so some of that was with genetic manipulation, but some was with pharmacology. And for that, we used lovastatin. So that was the compound that you were referring to. At the time, it was the only inhibitor for non-muscle myosin 2. And we worked with that and got all the same results. Wow. It's absolutely fascinating. And it's so amazing that you see the effect so quick. And I'm just wondering how that works. Like, does the way memory consolidation occur differ between short and long-term memory and, and the way the mechanism of the drug is acting? Yeah. So great question. There is some debate in the field about short and long-term memory, um, but whether or not they're parallel processes or in line. But regardless, we do know that you need both actin and myosin in order to form new memories. Right. However, the actin cytoskeleton is only um, active for a matter of minutes. So within minutes of a learning event, the actin cytoskeleton is already stabilized. That's true for other kinds of memory, but for some reason, not for memories associated with methamphetamine or amphetamine, which has relevance to Adderall. And I think that could become, unfortunately, important in the future because Adderall abuse is really rampant in high school and college-age students. So these long-term memories rely on it, but only for a very short time. However, with meth memories that are established, that actin cytoskeleton remains active. So you can give the inhibitor to an animal when they're sitting in their home cage, not learning, and it will target the meth memories but no other memories, and we've studied it pretty extensively. It doesn't target even memories for other drugs of abuse. Yeah, I found this so interesting, the way it was specific, like you mentioned, and it wasn't affecting things like morphine or cocaine memories. And do we know why that is? Do the drugs differ in the way they affect memory formation? So we just don't know. But we think there must be something unique about methamphetamine, perhaps... um, signaling pathways that are activated. What we do know is that myosin remains constitutively active after a memory is formed and not in the other cases. So what we're proposing to do is go upstream and look at the kinases and phosphatases that regulate the balance of myosin activation and then continue upstream from there to see if we can link it to 
something unique about methamphetamine signaling versus other drugs of abuse. But all of these are just really open questions for mm. us. We're not going to be um, running out of questions anytime soon. There's a long list of experiments to be done. <laughs> well, that's always a good sign. Yeah, so as long as the NIH wants to keep supporting it, we're good. For sure. Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting work, and this has just kind of opened the door to a whole, I guess, generation of new treatments to try and help with this issue. And I'm just thinking about the the translational potential from rodents to humans. And do we know if they're the same pathways of memory formation are involved from kind of a rat or a mouse to to a human? That is a holy grail question. Um, certainly, at the level of brain regions and brain connectivity, we have the answer to that, and mm. it's yes, because you can do imaging studies in people, but we can't excise brain regions, right, and, and do biochemistry to see if, yeah. uh, you know, the right kinases are being phosphorylated that we would predict. The best that exists is sort of genetic disorders, so monogenic causes of intellectual disability, and there many of the genes that show up as causative and intellectual disability cause, you know, similar cognitive problems when you're studying mice and rats. So there is that level of connection or relevance. But beyond that, we can't get into the nitty gritty too much, unfortunately. Right. So going back to the specificity, I mean, it's it's very good in a way. Um, but I'm also wondering whether this, this same approach or a similar approach with different targets uh, might be able to be used to kind of resolve other drug addictions. I'm, I'm thinking kind of prescription opioid medications and the overuse of those. In theory, yes. So that's one of the big reasons why we want to understand what it is that's unique about meth memories. Um, if we can identify what that is, it's possible that it's something that can then be you know, transferred over and applied in some way to other drug use disorders. Without knowing what it is right now, it's difficult to say. You could also imagine the flip side of the coin. So if you're talking about something in general that makes the memory uh, unstable, it's possible that reversing that in cases of cognitive decline could stabilize memories as well. So there's, there's a lot of potential value to figure out what's going on, what we've sort of stumbled across, uh, but we won't know the full potential until we figure out you know, what the actual mechanism is. Well, that's so exciting, and I, I really look forward to future work. Like you said, there's so much to do. Yeah, but I have to say what I'm the most excited about is the NIH and specifically NIDA's support of the work, because, again, they're supporting this medication development project that without it, we would have to be going door-to-door asking ACs for funding, and that can be really tough when you're talking about something related to addiction, especially methamphetamine. It doesn't necessarily garner the most uh, sympathy. Yeah, of course. It's, it really helps raise the awareness for this kind of work. So that's great. And I have to ask, uh, do you watch Breaking Bad? I don't know if this is a good question. <laughs> you know, you think I would have. I've watched the first episode and I just haven't had a chance to. It's terrible because it's something I should so obviously watch. <laughs> yeah, it is um, it is depressing, <laughs> kind of like the real story, but it's it's so well done. Yeah. So it might be, might be worth a watch. Yeah, I will, definitely. Okay, so if you're not binging on TV shows, uh, do you have any other uh, kind of fun hobbies that you like to do when you're not working in the lab? Um, Yeah, I mean, my husband and I have a now six-year-old, and so that keeps us pretty busy. He keeps us really busy. Um, But we do like to travel, and I mean, that's one of my favorite things about this job 
is the opportunity to travel. You know, I've experienced places and cultures that I would definitely not have if it weren't for science. Do you have a favorite place? Oh, that's tough. Uh, we went to a meeting in Tahiti how many years ago? Wow. Six years ago. And we're going back for um, that same meeting. Wow. So that's pretty awesome. But, you know, we've also been places like Morocco, which was incredible in its own kind of experience. So just my final roundup question, I don't know if you've heard it before, but this is what I ask all my guests, which is um, if you could give someone a piece of advice or your one piece of wisdom to anybody in the realm of work or career progression, life, health, relationships, anything, self-improvement, what do you think it would be and why? I think the thing that I impart to my trainees most often would be that a career is a lot like finding a partner in life. So you're going to be doing that for a very long time with a partner in theory you're going to be with them for many decades so it's the same thing with a career you may not want to choose something based on I guess what you're most immediately interested in but more importantly if you have the luxury to do so which as scientists we do so if you have the luxury to step back and say you know what makes me the happiest it's really important to start with that and then build your future life around it so it doesn't have to be your career for instance because at the end of the day your relationships and the rest of your life is not going to be waiting there for you. There's always going to be another experiment to do, another paper to write, another idea to flesh out. So I think it's really important to identify what makes you happy, make that your core focus, and then work around that. Courtney, thanks so much for for joining me uh, on the show. It was really great to talk. And will you be coming out uh, west for the Society for Neuroscience in November? I will. Yep, I will be there. Excellent. And I believe there's a um, the Pearson Addiction Center. There's going to be a, a get-together. So I, I might see you at that. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I plan on going there. So we'll look for each other. Amazing. Yeah, we'll um, meet in person. Where can people find you? I know you're active on Twitter. I can't remember what your handle is. Uh, Miller Lab 3. Apparently there were a couple that came before me. Miller Lab 3. But you're the one with the red hair, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's really, I say that because anyone that um, knows me knows I'm really easy to find at meetings like neuroscience. You've got a sea of, you know, tens of thousands of people, and yet everyone somehow finds me in the poster sessions. The red hair. Perfect. I won't have any issues then. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much, Courtney. I look forward to meeting you in person. And yeah, thanks again for being on the show. There you have it, folks. I cannot wait to see what the future holds for this kind of research. So that was Miller Lab 3 if you want to follow Professor Miller on Twitter and we'll have more coverage of her lab's work in the show notes. Remember, we are there on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play and your podcast mobile app of choice. It's just that easy to go in there and hit subscribe. More good stuff coming soon from a variety of guests, so stay tuned. Happy Halloween, thanks for listening and be well.